Well, Father, we are so grateful that we can be here today. And I think about how this is Memorial Day weekend, and we remember the sacrifice of the men and women who uh, allowed us to freely gather and hear your word together. Uh, we appreciate all that they have done. Uh, as we kind of transition now to hearing your word taught, as we understand the greatness of Jesus and how he grew in wisdom, I pray that his example will be one for us, that we will seek to grow in maturity to become like Christ in every way. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you guys know I'm an avid reader of biographies. I love my nonfiction. In fact, we had a dinner conversation this past week, and my kids pointed out that they can't remember the last time I read a fiction book. So I think it was Grapes of Wrath maybe three and a half years ago, and that was because my daughter asked me to, you know, so that's kind of what it takes. But my default is nonfiction, and I love biographies because I love learning about great men and, and women. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, George Marsden's on Jonathan Edwards, where you have a great mind serving in rural America, you just had this impactful ministry. Uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's been a favorite subject of mine, uh, learning about leadership from him. I also learned some great lessons of leadership from a biography of Joseph Stalin, but just making sure you're paying attention. But the one I'm reading right now that's been really fascinating is Winston Churchill. And one thing that really makes a biography super fascinating is when they go into the childhood because who raises someone and how they're raised is often very formative in who they become. And so you look at Winston Churchill, I'm not sure if you knew this, he had an American mother, which explains why he had a deep affection for this country. He was also the son of Lord Randolph Churchill, who was one of the great British statesmen of the time. And he had a distant relationship with his father. And so part of his ambition is speculated that he always wanted to please his dad and become a great man like his dad, which explains a lot about what propelled him into politics and to the upper echelons of what it meant to, to lead Britain during that time. But all that to say, when, when Proverbs talks about training up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it, there is a correlation between how somebody is raised and their childhood and what man they become. Now, when we look at the Gospel of Luke, which we're studying about right now, uh, we see that it is a biography, a biography of Jesus Christ. And in, at the end of chapter 2, we get a very unique story. It is the only pre-ministry story that involves Jesus, right? And the other ones, Jesus is born, but here he speaks, he interacts, and we gain some real insight into what made Jesus Jesus. How did he grow to become the man that he became? So if you haven't turned there already, let's turn to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended as they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. 
And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him at the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now this passage gives us some unusually fascinating insight. Often when we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus being the second person of the Trinity. We think about how the miracle of the incarnation is that God became flesh and dwelt among us, right? It's his deity that makes him especially intriguing and fascinating. And what's really interesting is when you look at stories about the boy Jesus that circulated in the early church, they all had this extra emphasis on his deity. I'll give you three stories, right? In one story, the boy Jesus decided to make pigeons out of clay, right? He formed the clay, and then he caused them to fly away. In another story, this is my personal favorite, uh, Jesus is bullied, and then he pronounces a curse on the bully, and the bully dies. And then his parents talk to him, Apparently, they had a conversation that maybe you shouldn't kill people, Jesus. And he decides to raise the bully back to life. There's another story where Jesus goes, is brought by Joseph into the temple, and he instructs, he basically owns the teacher. Right? In all of this, you see that there's a theological agenda that they are going to promote his godness over his manness. If you ever look at medieval art, one thing you'll notice is when they have the, the paintings of, of Jesus and his mother as a baby, Jesus would have the, the face of a grown man, which makes for some really ugly baby pictures, by the way. But one of the reasons for that is uh, back in that time, there was a lot of debate and an emphasis on Jesus, um, on Mary being the mother of God. And so when she gave birth to her son, she gave birth to God, and they viewed him as, as fully formed right out of the womb. But you look at the end of this passage, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was born the promised Messiah, but he had to learn how to scooch, how to crawl, how to stand, how to walk. He had to learn how to make sounds and then put them together into words, into sentences, into paragraphs. You see, Jesus was born the second person of the Trinity, but what he did was he set aside the free exercise of his divine attributes. He lived as a man in every sense of the word. 
And so this is where his childhood is very instructive. If we have this sense that Jesus was God and that's how we explain his obedience, that's how we explain his life, that's how we explain how he lived the way that he did, then it can often uh, maybe discourage us from one relating to him as our high priest, as someone who understands the human plight and human condition. But also, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, much of what he does is to be open to imitation, right? You are to forgive as Christ forgave you. You are to love as Christ loved you, right? As we see Jesus interact, we have the perfect template for how to live a truly righteous life. And if you give that the deity discount, right? Where, well, he's divine, so yeah, of course. Then we can basically say only Jesus could do that. That's not something we can aspire to ourselves. But when you understand that Jesus grew in wisdom and grew in stature, when you understand that he wasn't born an expert of the law, he came about all that knowledge honestly, when you understand that Jesus grew, then there is something to learn for how did Jesus grow to become the man that he became. And we can take that example and grow the same way ourselves. So this is what we're going to see. We're going to see how did Jesus grow. And before we do that, I'm going to tell you this story, and then we're going to look at some reflections so that we can emulate how to mature as Christ matured. Okay, so let's go ahead and start with uh, Luke 2, 40, right? After he was circumcised, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, right? So you have the introduction of Jesus growing, and then we have this story. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, right? The Passover was one of three major feasts in Israel, uh, the Pentecost and the Feast of the Tabernacles were the other two, but the, the Passover, I mean, that was the Christmas of Israel. That was the national celebration. It was Christmas and the 4th of July all kind of brought together because it commemorated the founding of their nation, the covenant that God made with them, and how God made good on his promise to Abraham to rescue Israel from the dark forces of Egypt. And he did so through a series of 10 plagues, right? And the 10th and final plague, there was a promise that God was going to send the angel of death, and the angel of death was going to go throughout all of Egypt and kill the firstborn son of every home, with an exception. If you sacrificed a lamb, and took the blood of the lamb and sprinkled it on the doorpost that night, the angel of death would pass over the door and spare the life of the son. Right? Obvious implications. Well, this was the high holy day. And it was commanded that all able-bodied men travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover together as a national family. And so Joseph being a man who was compliant to the law of God, right? We just saw how they circumcised Jesus to present him at the temple. They dedicated him to the Lord. 
they would go up every single year. And not just Joseph, but Joseph would take his wife. Women were not obligated to participate in this feast, but it's interesting how his parents went up every single year. Now, they would travel with a caravan because that 80-mile journey was uh, pretty arduous, difficult, and, and dangerous. Robbers would often have their way. And so the whole village would travel together as a, as a giant family to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this. And this one's a special one because, in verse 42, and when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now, Jesus is 12. Now, in another year, at the age of 13, that was the age when young men were considered men. They were fully responsible before the Lord. They had to keep the Torah. Now, that is where we actually get the, well, the Jews get the tradition of the bar mitzvah, right? They didn't have it back then, but it came from this tradition that at 13, you were accountable. Now, age 12 was almost a year of preparation for that fateful year where he's fully responsible and he needs to make the trip. And so some speculate that this was probably Jesus's first trip to the Passover. This would be his first time to go up to Jerusalem in preparation for his 13th year when he'd be fully accountable to the law. And when he went up there, he would approach the holy city and see it packed with people. One ancient source uh, explains there were 50,000 men who were in Jerusalem you kind of do the math, there's speculation that 200,000 people were gathered together at the Passover. They would stay in people's homes as people were obliged to open up their home to the guest. Often the payment would be they'd get the, the skin of the lamb that was sacrificed. Jesus would uh, go see the temple with Joseph and watch Joseph go ahead and take the lamb to the priest, watch the priest slaughter the lamb and, and allow the blood to flow into gold and silver basins and then splash the altar with that blood. He would hear the, the singing. He would smell the incense. He, he would watch his father come back from the temple with a skinned lamb around his shoulders and they would roast it at night, eat it with bitter herbs and hear the story of the Passover. And then the rest of the week, they would continue celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In all of this, this was kind of a, a, a spiritual Disneyland for Jesus. He would explore the, the temple and, and hear people talking about the, the Lord and what's the meaning of the Passover, what are the prospects of the Messiah. Some of the finest minds in Israel would be in various porticos, uh, instructing different disciples and having rabbinical debates and and Jesus would have overheard them become intrigued by them maybe sit in on them and when the time of the Passover ended Jesus didn't want to leave and so he didn't he stayed behind verse 43 and when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in the temple. His parents did not know it. So at the appointed time, the group from Nazareth all got together and they made their way north back to their home city. Now, when you read this, you're kind of wondering, how did this happen, right? Was this like a home alone type of situation? 
I mean, when you go on a trip, you pack everybody in the minivan and you go. But I think it's helpful to remember that they didn't necessarily travel as a nuclear family. They traveled as a, a, well, with relatives and acquaintances all from the same town. And, and sometimes it was arranged where the women and the children would go in the front and the men would bring up the rear. And so they're traveling to their first camp spot. It would be about a four-day journey to make it all the way to Nazareth. And Joseph doesn't see Jesus, but he thinks, well, Jesus is, is 12. He probably still wants to make one final journey with the children in the front. Mary might be at the front saying, well, I don't see Jesus, but he's about to become 13. So he's probably at the back with the men. And so they stop traveling. They set up camp. Joseph prepares the tent. Mary joins them. And they ask the question, where's Jesus? I don't know. I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. Has that ever happened to anybody in this room, by the way? Okay, yeah. We've all been there. But supposing in verse 44, him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. So they go from tent to tent. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And they conclude, he's not here. So they make the sensible decision. And when they did not find him, they returned, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So they travel one day out, they travel one day back, and the third day, they're looking all over. They go to the place where they stayed, they go to, to the markets, they ask other people, and then they finally come to the temple. And what do they see? Well, they see Jesus sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So you just imagine the scene. In the temple, they have all these different porticos. A 12-year-old Jesus just quietly sits down and listens to this rabbinical discussion. These rabbis would often train their disciples. They might have conversations with other rabbis. And so there'd be maybe a small group and kind of an audience that's talking. And they would maybe ask a question to the crowd. And a little 12-year-old hand would just shoot up and they would, he'd give an answer. And they thought, very good. What is your name? Jesus. Okay, I'll remember that name. They keep on talking. And then there's an, the hand shoots up again. And he asks, he asks a question. Like those of you who are teachers... You know, when somebody asks a really intelligent question, it says a lot about them. You ask the question, they're thinking, that is a very good question. You're Jesus, right? And then it just keeps on building and building and building. Next thing you know, there's this swelling crowd here, and everyone's like, who is this kid? Right? He's become a full conversation partner with the brightest rabbinical minds in Israel. I think about uh, Mozart, possibly the greatest composer of all time. He learned how to play the piano when he was three. He started writing music when he was four. He composed 10 full symphonies by the time he was 12. And he would go throughout Europe performing before royal families because they wanted to see this child prodigy. Right? Jesus 
He was a child prodigy. He was understanding the implications of Scripture, and he wasn't necessarily showing off. He was in a position where he wanted to learn. He wasn't instructing them. They were instructing him. He is asking questions, answering them, and putting a lot of these pieces together. That's where Joseph and Mary find Jesus. And the Bible study comes to an end in verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mothers, have you ever, ever been there? You ever lost a kid? When we lived in California, we lived in a shoebox. So we never lost our kids. You can actually see basically every room in the house from one central point. So you always knew where your kids were. And when we moved out here to our house, we felt like our house was Hearst Castle, right? It was big, expansive, cavernous. We had no idea where the kids were, and they seemed to like it. <laughs> well, one night, well, one evening, I was just doing some yard work, and Nathan, Nathan gave me permission to share the story, by the way, uh, was outside with me scooching in his little plastic police car, and, and he was being potty trained at the time, and when you potty train kids, you try to make it as easy on them as possible, right? And so he was just wearing his dino print underwear. That was it. Key plot point, by the way. So I go into the garage to get a tool, and I come out, the police car is empty, and I thought, well, he must have gone inside. So I'm out there for about 10 minutes. I go inside to get a drink of water. I see Becky, and I just said, hey, have you seen Nathan? And she says, I thought he was with you. What? So what do you do? We went to every room of the house. We cried out, Nathan! Then we circled the house. Nathan! And, and our kind, loving neighbors began to perk, out, perk up and, and just said, are, are you looking for someone? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for my son. And so all of a sudden, there's this impromptu search party where all the neighborhood just kind of gathered together. And they said, okay, we'll help you find him. Can you give us a description? <laughs> I'm like, sure. He's two years old. He's blonde with blue eyes and unusually white skin. And he answers to the name Nathan. What's he wearing? <laughs> well, he is wearing underwear um, with blue dinosaurs on it. That's it? Yes, that's it. Um, by the way, I'm the pastor of Flint Hills Bible Church. We have a great kids program, and I uh, would love to have you come. They'll be safe with us. <laughs> By the way, don't worry about Nathan. He did live, by the way. So we all went on a search, and within about five minutes, our younger neighbor, a teenager, said, I think I found your son. He's in the backyard, two houses over on a trampoline. And so I, I go find my, my son, and I interact with some new... I met the whole neighborhood this way. It was a great chance to witness to them and... And uh, they said, oh, we just love them. He told us his name is Dave. <laughs> and he lives 
over there when our house was over there. I just said, oh, Nate, you little scamp. So good to see you. Thanks for watching out for our boy. You know how they are. And I remember when they shut the door. Nathan, prepare for the wrath of your father. <laughs> We're going to go to the red bathroom where you will engage in the discipline of the Lord. Now, don't worry, he did live. So it was. Uh... But you look at that and you think, should Jesus get a spanking, right? Should he get disciplined? Was this a sin on his part? Right? Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, right? How can you do this to me? And then you get to the climax of the story. And incidentally, these are the first recorded words of Jesus in this book and really in his life. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You didn't need to look all over Jerusalem to find me. I would be in my father's house. In fact, he says, I must be in my father's house. Now, that word must is used on other occasions in Luke. I'm going to just read them to you. Luke 4, 43, <clears throat> Jesus says, I must preach the good news. Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer. 13, 33, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. 19, 5, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 24-7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day arise. 22-37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Notice when Jesus says must, he has an obligation. An obligation to his heavenly Father. You see, Jesus really had two fathers, didn't he? He had his adopted father, and then he had his true father. And in this case, his father wanted him to be at his house to learn his word. Now, it makes sense. When, when Jesus was with Joseph, Joseph taught him everything that Joseph knew. He taught him about how to walk with the Lord as a faithful Israelite. He taught him how to manage your household. He taught him uh, how to be a carpenter, right? How to craft wood, how to estimate, how to gain supplies. But there was a limit to what Joseph could teach him. And so when, when Jesus was among the smartest minds in Israel, where he could truly learn and understand on a deeper level, his father in heaven wanted him to learn those lessons there. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. See, so Joseph and Mary had all kinds of exposure to, to angels, they understood the prophecies, and knew that he would be the Messiah. But at this moment, they didn't understand it. It could be that they were panicked. It could be that they thought about the Messiah in certain terms. They did not quite understand why the Messiah would have to be an expert in Scripture. But regardless, they weren't putting the pieces together. Well, when they retrieved him, what did Jesus do? Well, verse 51, 
he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now that word submissive is the strongest word for submission that you find in the Bible. He was obedient. Luke makes it very clear that Jesus was an obedient son. And then we learn that his mother treasured up all these things. It could be that Mary was the one who told this story that got told to Luke, or perhaps Mary interacted with Luke directly. But she is remembering and cherishing these things. And then we read, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's a continuation of 240. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. There was no time when he was not. He is uncreated, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-everything. But when he came to earth, he became a human in the fullest sense. He had to learn how to walk, and he had to learn how to talk. And from what we see here, he had to learn the Scriptures. And all of this was because he set aside the use of his, of his divinity, right? It's like a father who wrestles with his three-year-old son. He holds back. Jesus held it back so that he can be perfectly human in every sense. And, and what this really shows us is that when Jesus started his ministry at approximately the age of 30, he was fully mature he was fully wise. He was grown up, so to speak, so that he could minister the word and really even challenge some of the greatest minds in Israel with his understanding of scripture. He came by that understanding honestly. He grew up. And so when we look at spiritual growth in the Christian life, which should be the goal of all Christians, you, you see that to become like Christ, you become like Christ the way that Christ became like Christ. Jesus grew up. He grew in wisdom. And so how did he grow? And I think there are three things that we can pick up from this passage that explain how Jesus grew. Number one, he learned from devout parents. Two, he loved the word of God. And three, he lived under authority. He had devout parents, he loved the word of God, and he lived under authority. So as we go through this, I, I think it'll be instructive for us. Number one, Jesus had devout parents. Now we can excuse Mary's panicked question, right? It wasn't her, her finest moment. She didn't really understand what was going on. But what you see is Mary's godliness coming through when she presents herself as a servant of the Lord when Gabriel announces her birth. Joseph is described as a righteous man. And, and Matthew, even though he found out his wife was, was pregnant apart from him, he was going to put her away quietly to save her dignity, but then an angel speaks to him and he obeys. You see that they circumcised Jesus after eight days understanding that that was their obligation to the law. At 40 days, they undergo the purification and the dedication and the consecration of Jesus. Purification of Mary, the consecration and dedication of Jesus. You see that they went to the Passover every single year. 
they were devout parents. Of all the parents that God could, could have given the Messiah, he gave them Joseph and Mary, who were devoted followers of Yahweh. Joseph would have heeded the words of Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, sometimes we think that parenting is just all about discipline and correction. You're trying to... Um, discipline the foolishness out of a child, right? And that's part of it. That is part of it. Now, that wasn't the case with Jesus, right? He had no foolishness. He did not sin. Joseph and Mary never had to crack down on him. But that's not the only form of parenting, right? There is a way of teaching them in the way they should go, helping them to understand the meaning of the Passover, Understanding creation, understanding the truth of the Bible, understanding the will of God, displaying it, living it, teaching it. All that was entrusted to Mary and Joseph, and by everything that we can see, they were flawed, but righteous, faithful, devoted parents. And children, if you have devoted parents, thank God for that special blessing in your life. If they're devoted to the Lord, and, you know, they may be inconsistent, but not hypocrites, right? There's a difference between inconsistency and hypocrisy. Then thank God and follow their example. That is one of the easy ways to grow is to model godliness that you see in other people. And if you don't have devoted parents, placing yourself in the company of other devoted people, being a part of a spiritual family like this church, that is one way to grow is to see how other people apply the word of God to their lives and they live it out. Jesus was blessed with Joseph and Mary. He saw faithful religious devotion. Number two, Jesus loved the word of God. Jesus loved the word of God. But Joseph God bless him, taught him everything that he knew. Joseph, for all we know, was probably illiterate. He was a carpenter. He wasn't a rabbi. He taught him everything that he knew. He would go to the synagogue and pass along that information. But he can only take him so far. I know we have a lot of homeschooling families here. And many of you do an excellent job of educating your children. But you know you can only take them so far. Right? If your child wants to be a chemist or a pharmacist or a lawyer uh, or you name it, right? There are, there's another level that they need that's outside of you. And so with Jesus, when he went up to the Passover and he heard the brightest minds in Israel talking about the scriptures, this was his opportunity to learn and to sit and answer these questions and when you think about it, remember how they went up every single year? Well, that probably continued. Now, Jesus probably had a sharper mind than others. He was very much committed to it. But as he went year after year after year, you begin to understand how he was able to build a knowledge base that had an incredible command of Scripture. 
He came by it honestly because he loved the word of God. I think about Psalm 19, 7 through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Right? He loved the word of God because he loved its effect on his life. It gave him wisdom, enlightened his eyes, kept him back from hidden faults and sins. Right? If you want to grow, first of all, he was around devoted company, right? But two, he loved the word of God. If this is your only encounter with the word of God this week, that's like eating once a week. Those who love the word of God, not just know, but love the word of God, they will grow. It is the food that feeds the soul. And what you see with Jesus is Jesus loved the word of God. He wanted to sit under instruction of the word of God from an early age at 12. Thirdly, Jesus lived under authority. He was at his father's house because it was necessary to be there. He was under his father's authority. He also lived under his parents' authority. Jesus embraced his place. You see this in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But notice, before the exaltation, Jesus voluntarily humiliated himself and put him under his Father's authority, and he put himself under his parents' authority. See, Jesus knew the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you, Exodus 20, 12. He understood that he needed to be obedient to his parents, but also obedient to his true father. You see, a lot of people will say, I love the word of God. I love studying the word of God. And, and what they mean is they, they love the prestige it might give them in a spiritual community. They might love the word of God because it sets them apart. They have a mind that's able to reason through it. It stretches their mind and kind of gives them confidence and maybe some sort of social clout. 
They love the, the word of God because they can use it to own other people and win every theological debate. But did you know that the Pharisees love the word of God for the same reason? They love the word of God because the word of God was useful for their purposes. If you want to find somebody who really loves the word of God, do you know how you can tell if somebody loves the word of God? Really loves it? They obey it. If somebody really loves the word of God, they obey the word of God. If people who obey the word of God, they have a high view of the word of God where it doesn't matter if they like what it says or not. They're going to obey what it says. They have an obedient disposition. When the passage convicts them, instead of saying, this may not belong in the Bible, they might say, this sin doesn't belong in my life. Jesus loved the Word of God, and he was obedient to the Word of God. So all this to say, and to become like Christ, uh, it, it doesn't just happen. Even Jesus had to grow. Isn't that interesting? Even Jesus had to grow. Jesus surrounded himself and was surrounded by devoted people. If you want to grow, surround yourself with devoted followers of Christ. Jesus learned the word of God so that he may grow. If you want to grow, learn the word of God. Jesus obeyed the word of God. If you want to grow, obey the word of God, right? It's a pretty simple prescription, right? Surround yourself with devoted people, learn the word of God, and obey the word of God. And if that's what Jesus had to do to become who he was, right? Why do you think you might be an exception? You see, some people think if I just have like this religious experience, if I just sing worship sometime and I just kind of feel this closeness to the Lord, that's all it takes. It's kind of like people who want to lose weight with a fad diet, <laughs> right? If I get this surgery or if I take this pill, I can cut out the discipline and get the, the results that I want as opposed to just simple discipline and self-control. I mean, spiritual growth is no real secret. There's no real trick to it. It's surround yourself with devoted people, love the word of God, and obey it. If you do those three things, you will become like Christ. And so when we look at this, Jesus grew in wisdom. Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in his understanding of God's will. He grew in stature so that he could be prepared to be our Messiah, to live that perfect life, to die the death that we deserve to die so that we can be rescued from our sins, so that we have the power to be like Christ so that that bondage of sin is broken in our life, so that we can grow, so that we can be liberated from the bondage of sin, so that we can live a life that's pleasing to our Father just like Jesus. And the path to do so is one, through faith in that reality, and then two, taking advantage of the resources that God has given us to grow. If Jesus had to grow, 
we should grow. And he gives us the path to do so. So let's pray and ask God to grow us. Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for the example of Jesus. And I pray for anyone who might be stalled in their spiritual growth, perhaps wondering why am I not changing, that this very simple message will give them guidance and a path forward so that they may grow and experience the, the joy that comes with becoming like Christ. Lord, we're thankful for many things about Christ, but we are thankful for his, his humanity and how he lived that perfect life as an example for us, but also as a sacrifice for us. And I pray for anyone who's on the outside looking in that they will be curious and drawn to what that means and pursue it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.